Hey, welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. I'm Randy Silver. And I'm Lily Smith. And this week we're talking to Petra Ville from Hamburg. So Petra runs Mind the Product Engage in Hamburg and is a freelance product discovery coach. She's worked with SAP, Zing and Sky. And Marty Kagan was basically tweeting the other day to say she was one of the best discovery coaches ever. And we ran into her last week uh, when we were both up in Manchester for Mind the Product Engage, and we saw some amazing talks. Hey, Lily, who was your favorite? What did you learn? Oh, it was very hard to choose which talks to go to because there were so many great speakers uh, and there were three tracks of talks. So yeah, it was really tricky. But I think my favorite quote of the day was from Tom Lucemore, uh, which was, don't waste a good crisis to show people a new way of working. I thought that was great. Oh, and also move faster than you can be caught. Tom was amazing. And, you know, we're going to talk about a couple more of these people, but don't worry if you missed out because videos of all of them, all the talks are going to go up over the next few months on Um I also thought that Holly Donahue did a great job on prioritization. She got us to do an exercise in the middle of her talk. That was a lot of fun. And I absolutely loved Lucy McLean. Uh, she's the head of children's products at the BBC. And she was talking about maintaining a portfolio of products. It was a great compliment to Ken Norton's uh, excellent 10 percent versus 10x talk a few years ago and she pulled off slideception <laughs> i think she was the the final slideception person and if you don't know what slideception is it's where each of the speakers take a picture of e- the last speaker that spoke and then put it up on their screen so you end up with a picture of a speaker of a speaker of a speaker of a speaker <laughs> it was completely ridiculous and a lot of fun <laughs> Uh, And it's just always great being in a room full of other product people and the chats you get to have in the coffee queue. But anyway, back to Petra. Um, So what did we talk about in Petra's interview? Well, we learned about what it means to be cool and how to prevent cool from getting in the way of making good product decisions. It's a problem that we all have, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk to Petra now. Tell us about um, the the coaching cards and um, and what they are and um, and how you came about kind of creating them. Actually, it, um, the idea came from two ends. One idea was always um, to write a book, and then whenever I check what could be topics for a book, I find a lot of things already already covered by the books um, that are on the market since one or two years and then I thought like how maybe there's something else I could do and a lot of my customers are booking me for coaching individual coaching for their product managers Um, and when I am leaving the building there is um, often nothing really left that really bothers them with the hard questions about product management so I thought about maybe it's nice to do something like my best of coaching questions in a card deck um, so that I can hand it to my customers. And then more and more people said like, maybe I can have one too. And then I decided to just sell them via my website. And that works well. People tend to like them a lot. They do funny things with it. So some um, startups without even having a product manager on board, they use them for yeah, having product discussions in lunch breaks or in their planning meetings when they're just developers on the team or something like this. So um, these kind of things or people just, they really have something like a small place at their desk where they put a card out every week. So that's why it's 52. So you can have one every week that challenges you a bit and you can think about it. Um, so the people get quite creative with how to use them. 
And I, I, one of the things I love is the way that they're broken down into the, the kind of the different the buckets, yeah, <laughs> kind of product development. So I'm just going to kind of try and remember which order they, the different buckets are. So there's like do some planning, find a solution, understand the problem, all forces united, which was fantastic. Um, yeah. So you have these kind of 52, 52 cards all in these different buckets uh, where you have questions in each of these different buckets, which encourage you to kind of think more product-like, I guess. Yeah, it's not, it's mm. certainly, it's not something which is, yeah, if you're not used to product management, it's maybe hard to use the cards. Um, but if you are kind of um, at least junior product manager and have some ideas about all these kind of topics, then it should be really helpful for you. Yeah, absolutely. And just questioning, questioning things generally is just a really important skill as a product manager. So I just... Yeah. I love the fact that it's just loads of questions. <laughs> cool. <laughs> no Thank you. Just questions. <laughs> yeah, it's just questions. The hard part is to answer them, but that's up to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be the practical one here. And so if you are interested in the cards, if you want to get a deck of your own, it's petra-villa.de for the site. That's true. There is an yeah. English version, so you just toggle the language and then you can order them via an English um, page. So it should be easier. <laughs> Fantastic. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> that would be great. Um, and also you have talked at Product Tank. Was that in Hamburg? Yeah. Great. And the the um, the Product Tank talk that you did was around uh, egoless um, product yeah. development. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you come about kind of developing this talk? Where, where did this come from? Actually, I was attending um, a conference in Sweden, in Malmö, and it's called The Conference. <laughs> it was back in 2015, and Andy Nordgren um, did a talk there, and the topic somehow really resonated with me because she was talking about this. Um, she worked at, or is working, I didn't check this one actually, um, at a games company. And she said that they really need to focus on what people can do with the game, in the game, what they think other people see from their activities. And so they need to think a bit um, different than normal um, product management where you have a customer or maybe you have somebody who's buying the product and somebody using the product. Um, and uh, she said... Um, that they think a lot about how they can really focus on the user and to a bigger extent than we normally do it. So all of us are more or less used to the concept of user stories and user-centered um, product design and these kind of things. But they really tried to go yeah, one step further, I would say. And they found mm -hmm. that they're really busy in the company um, with thinking about how the people like the product and if the product um, seems to be cool out there or is the company cool and um, am I cool in the company? Do the, my colleagues think I am cool? So everybody is really busy pretending to know something to, um, yeah, to be cool. And she yeah. had this drop your institutional ego to create better products. And that resonated with me. Um, and I did some yeah, homework, found some talks of Kathy Sierra and these kind of things. She was talking about it as well. Um, yeah, and it re really resonated with me. So that's why I started to prepare this talk with some examples from my, co from my uh, customers and these kind of things, yeah. So you talk about the institutional ego. Talk a little bit more about that. What is institutional ego? Ah, it's, it comes in so many varieties. Um, 
Net Promoter Score, for example, is a nice example. I was hoping you'd go there. (laughs) Sorry, you pushed me there. It's a (laughs) nice example for institutional ego. So you as a company are asking your customers how likely it is that they recommend your product to somebody else. So it's really, it's a complex question and it should maybe be phrased in a different way. So for example, something like... um, what can you as one of our customers or user now do with our product that you weren't able to do before? Or um, how did our product upgrade your, and now that's a big word, life? Mm-hmm. Or, so how did it improve your situation or these kind of things? I think that's an important yeah, twist in the ways we look to, for example, KPIs. And there is more of that. I have, I know so many companies and they're so busy with thinking about what is the perfect organizational structure in the company or how do we name our um, business departments or business lines and should we have a matrix organization or not? Actually, the customer does not care. <laughs> they only care about the hours people thought about how their life could be improved with a product or an app. So that's one thing. And then, yeah, another flavor to this institutional ego, for example, is um, you are never alone in the room with your user and we tend to forget that. So we are usually with just one of 60 apps in average on a user's mobile or we are just one piece of software on his notebook and or, or in his smartwatch or on at his fridge, whatever. So, but usually all these kind of things are just small, tiny pieces of, um, yeah, of the user's day-to-day life. And if you don't make this life better, easier, um, easier to organize all these kind of things, then you're maybe not that relevant for the user and that no matter if the brand is cool or they think you are cool or all these kind of things and companies who are really obsessed with this coolness factor there are companies that the brand is really cool and everybody um, sees this kind of things um, but still you need to really add value uh, and bring value to the user's table I would say otherwise you stay irrelevant um, and that's the coolness thing obviously is okay if it's your brand value or something like this. I don't advocate for not being a cool brand. <laughs> that's perfectly fine. And it's really important if you may be a product that is addressing um, early adopters or something like this, because these people tend to like cool products more than they like others. <laughs> Um, but if you're addressing a mass market, you need to be far beyond cool. Last This past year, Jared Spool went on a massive rant about how NPS is evil, and we could do an entire long conversation about that. But <laughs> I'll do this one with Jared. <laughs> but, but NPS is used because companies are looking for a way to measure how well they're doing with their customers. Yeah, but they're better. And a way to, absolutely. That, that's, and that's where I was trying to go. So the, the, the intent of it is to try and figure out how well are we serving our customer and are we succeeding? And you're saying that there are different ways of doing it. So where, where, how do you communicate that and track it internally? If you're not going to measure coolness, you're not going to use NPS, what's the, the right way to, to structure this? Actually, there's one really nice example, which is actually from Tristan Harris um, and the Time Well Spent initiative. Um, Tristan did a TED talk about it. It's a couch surfing example. And I think this really illustrates it nicely. So you, for example, could 
obviously that's work, but you could track or ask the people, okay, couch surfing is not just about yeah, finding a couch where you can spend a night on. It's more like you really want to share an experience with somebody in a different city or something like this. So it's not just you could rent a hostel if you just want to have a bed to um, crash your head somewhere. So um, couch surfing is about really the sharing experience and meeting people, maybe have dinner together or have a coffee in the morning and have a chat about where to go for lunch or something like this. So you could ask people, um, how much positive time did you spend with your host, for example, or with your um, guest? That would be a rather easy one. And then they just like said, it was three lovely hours with them over dinner. And then you could track, and that should be easy for a company, how many hours did they spend on my page to actually book this stay over? So that's an easy one. They're locked in, they look for a couch in London and then you can see like, okay, they spend 20 minutes to do so. And then you have something like a KPI, right? The time spent on site is kind of cost the people are investing and the positive time they spend with the host is a lot of gain and you can subtract um, the two and then you have something like a KPI, which is from my opinion, Maybe not much better, but at least it's a better start than um, using the NPS. So that's a North Star metric that's quality-based. Yeah. Yeah, it will be a quality-based metric in this case. Yeah, but you really need to understand the user, how you are upgrading his life. So, okay, couch surfing is not just about the bed. It's about the time you spend with the host. So you, as a company, you, that's the first thing you need to realize. And then you need to find a KPI for this kind of thing. It's not an easy one. I think analytics and KPIs can be quite difficult for yes. many different um, businesses and products. <laughs> there could be um, tons of podcasts <laughs> for this one. Exactly. <laughs> um, but just kind of going back to your sort of up- upgrading your user, is, is there a way that you explore that with, um, with the product managers and, and the companies that you work with to find... Uh, to find the right kind of upgrading? Like, do you do sort of user research or is it a case of just asking the right questions within the team to to find out the un- answer of, you know, how you're trying to upgrade this person? Yeah, actually in the more mature company, it's often the case that you need to get the product manager back to facing the customer because the professionalization over the last few years um, stopped somehow exposing the product manager to the customer in several companies, surely not in all, but um, in many companies, it's like they have a perfect user research team. They are organizing everything perfect. There are field studies and maybe there are um, journey, you know how it's called diary studies mm-hmm. where users just write what, the experience was with um, while using the product. They maybe do usability testing after they prototype something, all these kind of things. But um, the results are often canned in video types and these kind of things and in result studies and handed over to the product person. Ideally, their user research is kind of attached to the team or the interaction designer as well, but it's also professionalized. So often I the first thing I advocate for a lot these days is to really get back, um, really get in touch to the user. Go drive to their mm. office, see how they're using the product. If this is possible, go to your local Starbucks, really start talking with them again and really like a human to human interaction and not 
a product manager to customer interaction. So don't over, yeah, yeah, don't don't overthink. Don't ov always go with a questionnaire or something like this. Maybe it's really just having a human to human interaction. Yeah, so it's less professional and more yeah, uh, more listening. More conversational yeah. <laughs> not it's not just the same thing for every phase of a product development right so maybe there is a there are times when it's more like if the product is launched and you did some cycles with it and it's improved a lot maybe that's okay to look at the kpis in your data dashboard then and not starting deep human conversations with the user every day but mm. in general you should do this much more often and that's the first thing and when you're asking about methods, yeah, it's the same thing. Use whatever method as long as you're really listening and you really want to learn about how it feels to use your app. Sometimes customers even say, frankly, I don't use it that much because I don't, I don't like the color, the sound, whatever it is. Um, and then um, product manager tend to, ah, yeah, they don't like it. They don't use it that much. So why should I listen to this person? But you should listen to this person in particular yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and I love I love um one of the questions that you pose which is um you know why should people use our product um it's very important to have that kind of front of mind and I always refer but I don't know who came up with it but that whole kind of concept of is it a vitamin or a pill and you know, <laughs> it's the metrics um, thingy <laughs> yeah exactly so um, it's neither. It's yeah, a vitamin, obviously. A vitamin, yeah, vitamin. Um, so with the vitamin being, you know, it's kind of making my life better, but I don't need it. And then the pill being, it's essential because I'm having this problem and it's and it's fixing. And it's fixing problem. it. Yeah, that's a nice um, metaphor for this one, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I've used it. I've used it quite a lot to explain the different levels of need for, um, for customers and, Should and try this one as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In your experience, what kind of, um, transformation have you had with the teams that you're working with when you've kind of encouraged them to, to drop the institution, institutional ego and, and, uh, really try to think about this upgrading the user instead? Actually, it depends. The institutional ego comes in so many levels. So it can be like really something like, um, yeah, woven into the fabric of the company somehow. And then it's really hard to get rid of it. Um, and then sometimes it's really hard for the teams to drop institutional ego at their end. Um, but in general, it's rather relieving for them, I would say, because it's a bit of this don't over over engineer things just yeah you're such a bunch of clever people it's usually that's how it is in teams right so they, the companies really hire smart people and most of them picked up this idea about cross-functional teams which is even better because if you have cross-functional teams they tend to have the more creative more innovative solutions at hand if they really work together um, and if you relieve them from all these kind of institutional ego discussions and really say like try to not yeah, be dragged to this discussions and rather work on this human in, to human interaction mm. and really work with the customer, listen to them. That helps a lot. And first thing many teams, for example, learn, it's an easy one 
if I, if I tell it, it's a bit like obvious, but um, it's something like an epiphany for a lot of teams. Um, whenever I ask, when it's B2B product, for example, I always ask, okay, but are you thinking of the people buying this product, which is usually somebody in higher management or in procurement or something, and the people using it? And mm. that's the first thing many companies and teams have never thought of, which yeah. is sounds strange but that's how it is <laughs> and that's for example a, a good start to to look at the things okay are we taking all our users into account all the people in touch with our um, product and then it's a lot of is your customer support part of the product initiatives do they still need to send facsimiles to your company which is like back in the 80s or <laughs> have you solved these kind of things um yeah, so and just, teams really like this end-to-end -end responsibility in general. Yeah. Let them, yeah, take it over. Where do you see the pushback to it? Yeah, it makes teams or it makes, yeah, it makes teams to seem even slower to management sometimes, um, especially in the beginning. And... I think we have all these methods and methodologies in, in product management to really um, appear professional and it takes a lot of time to follow all the rules uh, because we, we, we decided to do jobs to, um, to be done and now we really need to follow the plan or oh, no, 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 we just do design sprints um, and we do this every other week and something like this. So yeah, the more laid back approach maybe is not um, looking as productive than the other ones following the methodologies, just filling all the canvases. Um, I think there's also um, this, uh, what I've experienced as well is, is some companies who are really scared of not appearing like they know everything yeah. um, and not wanting to talk to their customers in a in a kind of in an open conversational sort of way because they want to they don't want to ask questions that make it seem like they don't already know the answer. <laughs> and I heard it so many times when I say maybe the product people can just join some of the sales colleagues, exactly. some of the customers, and then the, the the management people are always like, "What? No way! <laughs> we cannot send somebody asking random questions with our sales stuff to our customers." Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. You, yeah, yeah. Right. So, and and I can see how that very much comes from a kind of an ego-driven, uh, you know, that that kind of concern about their their own ego, either as a business, which is, I guess, the institutional ego, um, or you know, as a as a CEO or a a business leader. Do you have a way of winning people round to this way of dropping dropping the ego? That's not an easy one. Um, for some, it feels really natural, and they just and I just need to convince them to try it once. Yeah, and then it's like yeah, eye opening, and then they roll it out to more and more teams, um, and really, it makes up so many time, so many hours of a day um, for research and this kind of brainstorming sessions. If you stop pretending to be cool, even inside the companies. How many of these quarterly reviews are where teams need to make big slide decks to present <laughs> what their team achieved in this quarter, which is rather fine. I like this checking back in on how teams um, are in on progress, uh, on the progress scale. But still, um, why does it need to be the most shiny and funny and, um, yeah, 
side deck <laughs> of the year. That's always a bit like, um, yeah, don't do this one, for example. Um, and then there are good examples. So there are successful companies where, you, for example, um, obviously Intercom is one who is really nailing in talking the language of their customers. So they picked up really natural language on how the customers would phrase things on the platform. That's a good example for this one. And um, so many companies are really, language is such an important thing. Um, and so many try to be professional and more yeah, firm on the language on the sites and on their products and in their apps, which is strange to the people these days. The people really... If you solve the problem they're having and if you do this um, in a nice way and you're more like a buddy is maybe the wrong word for, yeah, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> um, that could be much nicer. And there are um, successful companies who are using this kind of methodologies and are not caring so much about the, the ego. So it sounds like uh, some of what you're talking about is it can almost be called process theater. Um, and one of the, the slides in your deck that I really liked was uh, you can put up a lot of user stories and still be really self-obsessed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's one, right? Just by putting the user in the center of your user story, it still, still could be a really technical story, which the user will never ever call, um, care about. And that's what um, teams tend to do when they start using user stories. Then it's always really feature-describing technical user stories. Um, <laughs> as a user, I want to have a nice and shiny database with my login data <laughs> entered there. Would be a perfect example. It is a user story, yes. <laughs> but it, it's, it's not a user story the user would ask you for or something like this and it's not upgrading his um life if there is a login in some database somewhere somewhere so how do you know you're succeeding in this how do you know you're you're transforming your company and you're starting to do it right what kind what's the kind of marker or tracker you can look for to say ooh, we're, we're moving in the right direction um so first i'm really checking is product management getting customer exposure so that's an important thing um, to an extent which is okay for the company. And this really differs of if it's a B2B or a B2C product or how complex it is to get exposed to the user. Um, one of my customers, they, they have really big user accounts, but a really small user base. Um, so they they can have a customer charter program with all their customers, for example. Um, so it, it's really different. They cannot go to Starbucks and just interview random people, obviously. So it needs to be tailored to the company I'm working with or you are working in. Um, and then it's language. It's a lot of language. So is it really, other people in the company tend to use terms their customers and users would use and not really three letter abbreviations and special words for all the things. So that's another good indicator where you can see, okay, do the people really care um, for what our users need? And yeah. Is there a point at which it's okay to worry about being cool? Like when it's part of the, the kind of product strategy or the business strategy um, you know, is it is that okay? If you're really aiming for early adopters, you need to have some kind of coolness to your product because otherwise they won't buy it. So it, it at least needs to be exclusive or they need to be early and the only ones having it. So that's the cool factor then. Um, but I always advocate to think more of a brand and marketing coolness 
and mm. maybe a bit less about the product coolness because the product needs to really help the customer getting the things done he wants to get done. Um, yeah, and often it's more the marketing and uh, the brand coolness you need to add on top so that the people are attracted by the product. Um, and for sure, customers are never attracted just because you think you are working in a cool company. When I think about product development and, and when I use products, there are some things that um, products do, and I'm trying to think of an example, that brings an element of delight so it's yeah, not it's that's not perfect kind of, you've no you for sh- no you for sure should look for this stuff you should understand what are the delighters to your customers that's an important thing and an important conversation if you listen to them and um, you will never ever find those so that's mm. always the small innovations you could bring or yeah the little things you add on top to the nitty-gritty uh, details you add on top to really make it nice so um you should think about those. That's important, but that's not the the, the, um, the coolness I am talking about. It's more like this pretending to be cool because we are a cool company. We are a cool brand. Everybody should love us. Hey, this is us. Here we are. Nobody will use products just because you are trying to pretend to be cool. So that's the mm. thing. That's the coolness we don't want to have. If there is something where a user sits in front of his mobile screen installing the new app and thinks like, oh, this onboarding was so nice, which he would never, that's not a thought they will have, but they would say, oh, this was a, seam, a seamless a setup or something like this. And they would be really happy with this. That's the coolness you want to have, obviously. Yeah. You don't want to get rid of this. <laughs> and this one you only find if you listen to the users, really understand the situation um, in which um, settings are they using my product? Are they in a hurry? Are there maybe two screaming kids while they are using this? Are they in a subway where, um, subway, uh, where um, internet access might be limited or interrupted or this kind of things? And if you find answers to this, um, I think that's the coolness you want to have. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and explain it a different way. Let me see if I've got this this right. <laughs> Looking forward. Okay, so uh, there's the kind of cool that you're talking about that it comes from having delighters and things like that in your product. And that's very, it sounds like we're talking about the Kano model there of having the, the essential things yes. and everything else. And cool there comes from having every all the basics covered, but having some delighters in there. Yeah. And that's the good kind of cool. The bad kind of cool is kind of going back to... Um, using a real world example, uh, Theranos, you know, a really cool idea, one drop of blood, you can do a hundred tests, but it never worked. It was all marketing bump and, and flim flam. Uh, I just like saying, flim flam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and they were actually doing the, the same standard tests behind the scenes, but they were just trying to appear cool to get the funding and to, to, uh, upscale, upgrade the, the company and the stock. Yeah. Is that- so, yeah, so that's exactly that's the bad cool and yeah. the Kino model cool is the good cool. Yeah, the the Kino model cool is the good cool. I have one um one company in my head which is it's actually a German fitness company. Um I don't know whether it's widely known it's called Freeletics and they do like this high intensity training stuff with an app. Um and they really nailed it that the product is nice and cool and it's um easy to use and it's nice to use and still the brand really appears cool to the people who are interested in this high intensity trainings. So it maybe is not appearing cool to people who are not in this kind of things. Mm -hmm. This is fine as well, but they really tried to work on the brand 
but um, they did a lot of homework on the product as well, um, so that this one is um, nice and helpful. Um, and if you open up the product the first second, um, it's like, oh, okay, that's too much of coolness maybe. And then you use the product and then you think like, no, they're actually delivering. Um, so then it's fine. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I think there's a real balance between when you're launching a product or when you're working on a product, you, you want to be able to sell it a certain way so that people are enthusiastic about using it. But yeah. you want to temper that with... or you know, an authentic, <laughs> authentic yeah. side or, a, um, yeah, there's, you want people to be able to trust you. And I think if you promise lots of things and don't deliver, then they're not going to trust you. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess, yeah. So, and that's um, too, too. Yeah. You, you need to really deliver on the value and delighter side of things. Just yes. pretending to be cool is not enough. And especially, again, especially the internal coolness battles, that's the worst kind of coolness you can have. So mm. that's even worse than pretending to be cool on to the customer. Even worse is this kind of, we are the cool team, we are the cool department inside of a company because that consumes a lot of energy and time. And this needs to be dropped to create better products, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I love how much time we're spending uh, on talking about being cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a rock star podcast today. <laughs> I never knew it was such a careful balance. <laughs> yeah, there is. It's like with the vitamins and the pills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. So you you were both talking a minute ago about the Kano model. Um, just for those who, who don't know about the Kano model, do you want to explain a bit more about what that is? Ah, the Kano model. I'm in love with the Kano model since so many years. Um, there was a really lovely Jared Spool talk, some meant the products ago, about the Kano model. He used so nice example about hotels and warm water and what the people expect in their hotel room. Um, so go um, check this one. Maybe you can link this one as well. Um, but the Kano model is a um, model which uh, is talking about four categories, uh, categories in which you can put product development, let's call it features or um, product development enhancements or these kind of things. And it's really like um, things which add linear value to the product. So the more you're having of those, the happier the people get. It's a linear thing. Then there are basic things, which are, for example, if you ask people what their next um, mobile phone should be able to do, they tend to not say, I would love to make calls. That um, would be a basic functionality. So it's so obvious that people somehow stopped talking about it. So that's a basic functionality. Um, then there are the delighters, which are the ones which really make us happy. And we mm -hmm. really are surprised by. Um, that's the cool stuff. And then our, I don't know how it's called in English. What's the fourth bucket called in English? Randy? I only remember three buckets. You've got a different Kano model than I do. No, it's four quarter. <laughs> I describe what it is and then we need to look it up what it's in English. Okay. In German, I'm gonna have to go back to Faktoren. <laughs> yeah, that, definitely, that. <laughs> yes, we really love this one. So that's the stuff which people, which make, for example, your product um, like an old Ford product because it's stuff the, which is... The basics. The, the no, no, it's... Mandatory. it's 
No, basics are on the left, uh, on the bottom right, and on the bottom left there is the stuff you should not build because it even makes oh, your yes. product less attractive. For example, oh, okay. Okay. so old technology stuff and these kind of things. So it's even worse. <laughs> and right. basics is stuff nobody talks about. Linear factors is the more you add. That's the stuff uh, car companies tend to make you buy. So it's the cool radio <laughs> and it's the nice assistance system and these kind of things. So that's the linear functionalities. Okay, yeah, I'm and, sorry. I wasn't using the four-quadrant model. This uh, It's things that make people indifferent. Is in, it, is ah, oh, that's the English term. Okay. Mm. You see. <laughs> um, yeah, and then the delighters are the cherry to the cake. That's the Kano mm. model. And the good thing is you can put features into these buckets by um, um, creating a survey. Um, And even if you don't like the survey, the the model helps a lot for thinking about your next release. Because one good tip is like, obviously, you should have all the basics inside of your product release. And then some linear functionalities, not all of the stuff in your backlog, just some. And one delighter is usually enough because the one delighter makes the marketing. Um, <laughs> the, the marketing go, woohoo, we yeah. can work with this one. And so don't do too many delighters for every release. It's one is enough. Marketing will work with this one and then add some linear things and obviously all the basics. Great. That sounds really useful as well. Yeah, it is. Shall have to look that up. I've not, I've not um, read about that before. So, ah, cool, a new one, new one for me. <laughs> oh, it's definitely a good one. Um, yeah. Is there anything else we want to talk about on this? Is there anything? What's the one takeaway that you would really want someone to ta- uh, get from from your talk? Yeah, the one takeaway is just go back to work tomorrow and think about if you're spending too many hours inside of your companies on pretending to appear cool to other colleagues, other departments, your management, or even your customer. And then try to cut a bit of this time down and use it for more user research and more human to human interaction. So product manager to user, but on a human to human basis. That would be my famous last... (laughs) sentence <laughs> <laughs> takeaway main takeaway main takeaway if you want to get your hands on some of petra's coaching cards we put the link in the show notes and i can highly recommend them next week we're talking to bruce mccarthy author of the book on roadmaps we caught up with bruce last year at the mtp leadership event in london and if you missed london last year the leadership forum is coming to hamburg in may as well yep it's part of the mtp engage conference in hamburg so check it out the lineup looks great and bruce's co-author c todd is running a workshop on road mapping And there's a couple of other great headliners that have been announced, including the global VP of product management from Farfetch and the director of the Newmark Journalism School in New York. And that's all from us this week. If you have more questions about this episode, please tweet us at mtppod and subscribe so you don't miss Bruce next week. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at MTP pod. The product experience is part of the mind, the product network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. 
and here's global product tank manager mark abraham to tell us more about what product tank is product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world driven by and for product managers whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com slash training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time.